And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Good to see you guys. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Do you guys feel the whiplash? 108 Friday? And that was the high. That was the record. And then uh, today, it'll only get into the 70s. So I'm just... That's why you guys are so happy this morning, huh? <laughs> no. Much more than that, obviously. So just curious how many uh, like triple digit? You kind of enjoy that? Okay. Well, just to see who I need to pray for here this morning. How many are glad that it's back to 70? Okay. Enjoy it because it'll be over this next week, okay? Hey, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke, Gospel of Luke. That's what we're doing through this series, working our way through the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 21, certainty in a world of doubt, talking about our heart this morning. Also grab your sermon notes out. As, and this is where we finished off last weekend. So as you grow in your intimacy with God, that's the essence of the Christian life. This is what I love about the Christian life. We have relationship with the God of the galaxies. So as you grow in your intimacy with God, the more you will sense deep in your heart the delight of the only eyes in the universe that matter, deep in your heart, transforming every part of your life. Romans 8.16 says that, the, that his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 1 John 3.1, he says, how great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And so that should, that should be deep in your heart. You should hear those words deep in your heart, how much you are loved. Now, I ended by saying that, and then I, I, I made this statement, asked this question, what if I'm not hearing his voice like that? By the way, if you, didn't, if you weren't here, I would encourage you to go online and listen, get our app or, or whatever, and uh, listen to that message. We talked about intimacy with God, and then ended by asking, what if I'm not hearing that deep in my heart? And... We're going to answer that for you this morning. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart. You guys are on it. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And so we're going to look at the parable of the sower is what it's called. And this parable will help us to do a diagnostic check on our heart this morning. Before we read our text and unpack these notes, let's pray. Would you go with me once again before the throne of grace. Father God, you are perfectly good and unimaginably glorious. Knowing you is life's most satisfying reality. We pray through the study of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit that you would, as the psalmist prayed in Psalm 139, 23 and 24, search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts and see if there be any grievous ways in us, any sinful ways in us, and lead us in the way everlasting so that we can grow in our relationship with you, our intimacy with you, hearing more clearly deep in our hearts your delight in us, transforming us completely. We pray in Jesus' holy and beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. So let's, let's read through the text. It's a long text. 
And so we don't want to be in Luke for 10 years, only five years. And so uh, I'm taking, you know, big chunks from time to time. And I think all of this uh, really certainly goes together, starting in chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. This is Jesus. And the 12 were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and jo- Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said this parable. Now, there's large crowds gathering around Jesus. I mean, he's just attracting the masses here. This same parable is also found in Matthew 13 and Mark 4, those other two gospel accounts, and they'll give you a little bit, uh, you know, nuanced differences which help to really understand this particular parable. Verse 5, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. The birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock as it grew, as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it, and some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's a pretty, pretty significant statement. Verse nine, and when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Does that make sense to you as you read through that? So, so yeah, they've got eyes physically but not spiritually. They have ears physically but not spiritually. So he's talking about a different, a different kind of understanding of this spiritual realm, entering into this relationship with God and what that entails and, and then in verse 11, now the parable is this. So he's going to explain it to us. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. Isn't that interesting? So without a root system, when you hit hard times, you're going to fall away. If you find yourself drifting and, and defecting from the faith, you don't have a good root system. Verse 14, and as for what fell among the thorns, there are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, this is what we all want, the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast, so they hear it, they hold on to it, 
So they don't forget it as soon as they leave church on weekend service. They take it with them because they took really good notes. Or they go back and listen to it later, and they went through the growing notes. Okay, I'm kind of adding to that a little bit, aren't I? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, that's what, I think that's what he's talking about here. You're going to hold on to it. You don't just, you're going to think about it. You're going to reflect on it. It's not so much you get, you get a hold of it. It gets a hold of you. And so you hold it fast in an honest and good heart. Man, you just want to know Christ. You want to, to know what, he, what he's saying to you, and you want to respond to him. And notice this, and bear fruit with patience. The, the word there is endurance or perseverance. You're not going to give up. There's no quitting here. You're going to hang in there. Even though no matter how hard it gets, you're going to keep fighting the good fight of faith. That's, that's the idea here with that. Okay, so then he continues on, and he says, no one after lighting a lamp covers covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. So he's basically saying that if the seed takes root in your life, your life is going to be a light to the world. They're going to see the life change in you. And he says, verse 17, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. I mean, you can only pretend for, for so, so much time. I mean, you can... You can wear a mask, but inevitably, the difficulties of life will force who you really are to come out. You guys have seen that in in marriage relationship. You can fake it for a a couple months, but then after that, the true you comes out, huh? I mean, it it really does. Or maybe it took you a year or two, but it's going to come out who you really are. That's the idea here behind what he's saying. Verse 18, he says, take care then how you hear, for to one who has more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken from him. What is he saying there? Basically, our hearts, hearts are hardened when we ignore the truth we already have. So he says, you need to listen and take, let that truth take hold of your life to where it transforms your life. If not, over time, with increased exposure to God's word, plus decreased response. If you're not responding to what God's speaking to you, eventually you're not going to be able to hear God anymore. You're going to have a hard heart. So he's just saying, man, be receptive to his voice when he speaks to you. We're desperate to hear him speak to us, but over time, if I just ignore him, I'm not going to hear him. I'm not going to be able to hear him. My heart has become hard. Now, verse 19, then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So he's just saying, this is my true family. They hear God's word and, and they respond to it. They, they do what it says. This is the word of the Lord to us this, uh, this weekend. So pretty powerful text. So you can see that to really understand our hearts, there's three parts to this. There's the seed, the soils, and then the sower. Let's break this down as we work through this to do a diagnostic check on our hearts. So first of all, the seed. What is the seed? The seed is the gospel. Jesus told us that in verse 11. It's the gospel. It's God's word. This is the power. This is what transforms our life, the gospel, God's word. Now, I've got to do a pop quiz here for you. Those of you that are DBers, Desert Breezers, you guys know the answer to this, but I've got to test you on this. 
just to make sure that if you remember, uh, and don't answer out loud, I'm going to have you discuss it with the folks sitting around you, but is the Bible, so we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about the Bible, is the Bible pr uh, primarily a book about what you must do to be right with God, or is it primarily a book about what has been done to make us right with God? Real quick, discuss it with the folks sitting around you. Okay, okay. so what do you guys think? Is it, is it more about what you must do, D-O, or is it more about what has been done, D-O-N-E? How many are thinking done? Yeah, okay. You guys are right on it. I won't even ask to see who thought it was about doing because, because here's what's interesting about this is that what happens, and you see a lot of this happening in American uh, churches these days. If you hear messages, you really listen, you want to ask yourself the question, are they talking about what we must do? Are they talking more about what has been done and then we respond to that? Right. And so uh, it's so, because what happens is that we, we don't typically read the Bible as it is, we read it as we are. And so we have a filter, and so when we read the scriptures, if you're, if you're coming from a, oh, what, I, what I need to do so that I can be blessed by God, you're gonna turn it into kind of Aesop's fables of morals that you better get your act together, you better play right, you better do right, Otherwise, God won't bless you. That's the wrong order. Actually, the Bible says, no, it's about what has been done. He has blessed us. Therefore, we respond to him in obedience. We don't obey to get his blessing. We have his blessing. Therefore, we obey. Does that make sense? So don't, don't flip that. So when you come to the scripture, listen, it's been done. It's been done. So when it speaks about our lives, we're just responding to the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so it's not, a, it's not a have to, it's a want to. Oh my goodness, I want to honor him. I want to glorify him. So always keep in mind, we read, we live life like this. We don't, uh, we don't see life, we don't see things as, uh, we see things as we are, not as they really are. And so we've got this filter on, so always keep that in mind. Now let's talk about the seed here of the gospel, God's word. Romans 1.16 Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So it is a power. 1 Peter 1.23 says, we have been born again by the imperishable seed of his word. So born again, imperishable seed of his word. Hebrews 4.12 says, God's word is alive and powerful. Verses 1 through 3 of our text begins with those whose lives have been transformed by the gospel. Let me give you three statements here to help us to understand the seed, the gospel, God's word. It is his active presence in our lives. So when we study God's word, it's his active presence in our lives. Number two, second point on there, is that it can release the very life of God in us based on these verses and based on many other verses in the, in the scripture. So so it's his active presence in our lives. It can release the very life of God in us. And here's the, the third one, is that it brings us more and more into reality. It brings us more and more in touch with reality. So if the seed, the word of God, the gospel comes in, not just as information, so you're not studying it just for more information to cram into your cranium, but, but a power and begins to release its power in you, it will bring you more and more into reality, transforming and growing every area of your life. 
As he said there, that we are born again by the imperishable seed of God's word. So if you become born again, what happens is that you begin you begin to see the invisible hand of God. You begin to hear the in, inaudible voice of God. You begin to experience the inexplicable but undeniable presence of God in your life. He's made you alive to the spiritual realm. You begin to have a sense of, oh my goodness, I, I, I never, I've never, never heard it like that before. I couldn't hardly talk right then. But uh, I mean, I... Oh my goodness, I, I had an overwhelming sense that God's here. He loves me. Well, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so that begins to take place. Let me ask you some questions. So if this is true, and as we study God's word, when you face troubles, is God's presence, is his power, is his peace, is, are his promises so real that it fortifies your faith and dispels the inordinate anxiety, bitterness, and depression? See, there are times when I'm just overwhelmed by life and I go to his word and he begins to put me in touch with reality. I begin to go, oh my goodness, why am I so stressed out? Why am I so angry? What's, God, you're for me. You're, you're not against me. You love me. You're guiding me through this. I can trust you in this. See, that's, that's what he wants to do. Let me ask you another question. When you face temptations, is the power of sin's promise, sin offers a promise, people, we don't, we don't sin out of duty because we have to. We sin because we want to, because we think we're going to be happier by pursuing something outside of God's directives than inside his directives. We believe the lie. We believe that God's holding out on us. So, so is the power of sin's promise in dealing with temptation, is the power of sin's promise in your life broken by the power of God's promise? That, that You have that overwhelming sense to say when you're being tempted, allured away, to say, wait a minute, I know better than that. That's crazy. That's insane. No matter how attractive it might look, God's ways are always best for me. Does that make sense? And that's, that's, part of the, that's part of his active presence in our lives, the, the very release of the life of God in us, being more in touch with reality. See, when you are terribly criticized, when you're shunned, when you're ignored, when you're offended by others, is the Father's love for you in Christ, is his delight in you, is the applause of God more real to you than the criticism, than the shunning, than the rejection? Is it more real to you? I mean, oftentimes, I know that early on, and, and I can still kind of fall prey to this, is that when I'm criticized, I can tend to kind of lash out. I can blow up or or have a meltdown, okay? We, we all tend to do one of those two responses. I don't do that as much anymore. And it's because Christ, what he says about me is much more real to me than what anybody else says about me. And then I can analyze what they're saying to see and to embrace what is true and, and disregard that which is not and allow Christ to use that to transform my life. But is, is his love for you, is it, is it sweet? Is it powerful? Is it glorious? Is it beautiful? Does it affect you? Is it real to you? As I, as I quoted that verse, 1 John 3, 1, how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. I'm telling you, if you believe that, if that's not just a, a concept but a reality in your heart, okay, it might be clear to the mind, but it's got to be real to the heart. And when it's real to the heart, listen to me, you can face anything. You can face anything. 
And so my prayer, week in and week out, when we gather, his word becomes more and more real to us through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, so, okay, so that's the seed, the gospel, God's word. That's the power working in our lives. Now, let's talk about why some get it, some don't, and why some don't last. And, and sad to say, I'm a guy that gets up and preaches all the time, and we all proclaim the gospel. We either demonstrate it or proclaim it through our lives, and, but there's only a one in four chances that the people that we're proclaiming it to will actually get it, and it will take root and produce a, a, a prosperous crop in their lives because there's four soils here, so one in four actually are productive. And so we need to spend a little bit of time on this. And so welcome to our group counseling here this morning because I'm gonna, I'm gonna counsel you a little bit and if you'll listen to this, what I'm going to show you is going to be really, really helpful for dealing with your own heart and the issues of life. So we got the soil, and the soil represents the heart, and the heart represents, the, the, when the Bible uses the word heart, it uses it, how many times do you think the Bible uses the word heart? How many are thinking, a lot? Yeah, like 900 times. 900, close to 900 times it uses the word heart. And so when you think of the heart, this is what you need to think of. Take a look at the big screen here. So this is what the heart would be defined as. So it speaks of our, and I, I need to talk in such a way that those that listen online, they can't see this so, so that they will understand. So uh, if I'm a little bit tedious here, you'll understand. So you got the top is our behavior. Those are our actions. And then the next level, and you'll notice it goes down into levels. It goes much deeper. So the, the highest part on the heart are, are, is our behavior. And then you've got your feelings or your emotions. So you've got the will on the top, feelings, emotions, and then your thoughts. And then you've got the lowest level of your heart is the treasure. Matthew 6, 21, it says, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. Now, now listen to me. It's not the events of life, it's not what has happened to you, it's not your struggles that make you feel and behave, so I'm mentioning the top two, make you feel and behave, your actions, the way you feel and behave. And I'm not minimizing what you're going through. We have people here at Desert Breeze who are going through horrible things. And I'm not minimizing that. But I'm, not, but I'm just saying that, that there's not a direct, you can't draw a direct line to the events of your life directly to your feelings and actions. It actually goes much deeper in, in your heart. It's your thoughts, it's your thoughts, which is the third level down, it's your thoughts about the events of life that determine how you're going to feel and how you're going to respond to those events. It's not those people make you feel and behave the way you feel and behave, or it's not the events of life. It's your thoughts. It's what you're saying to yourself about the events of life. Better yet, your thoughts are your worldview. Oh, by the way, if you're a Christian, you forgot to add into the equation that God is for you and not against you when you're all stressed out and anxious and angry and depressed. You need to add that to your thoughts, but better yet, you need to even go deeper than that. You need to go down into your treasure because you're probably at that moment treasuring something more so than you're treasuring Christ because if you were to treasure him and you knew his love deep in your heart, you could get through anything. So what it's doing, it's challenging you to go even deeper into your heart to where your treasure is. Where your, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. So whatever your treasure is, so treasure also speaks of what you worship. Did you know that all of our issues are really about what we worship? Everybody's a worshiper. Even atheists worship something. 
They might worship themselves or any number of things. Everybody worships something. We all, so, so what it is is that so we are what we worship, we are what we love, we are what has ever captured our heart. The treasure would also represent the good life. What is the good life? How do you define the good life? What's most important to you? So if you are what you love, there's things that you worship, there's things that you fill your mind and your, and your heart up with that you, that you just, oh, this is the life for you. you. You think deeply about those things. So the things you treasure will dominate your thoughts. We're going to work our way up. Stir your deepest emotions and move you to action. You guys tracking with me? Okay, you guys, you guys good with this? Okay, makes sense? Okay. These people over here are, are a little bit... Uh, on it more so than this one over here. Okay, how about this group over here? Okay, okay, you guys are with them. I think you guys can outdo this gang over here, okay? This side, not to split this group up in any way. We don't want to get any fights here this, uh, this morning. But just to make sure you guys are with me on that, because that's really important to understand really the dynamics and how our heart works. The Bible uses this idea of heart quite a bit, and we need to understand how we're wired up as we respond. So here's the deal. And this is what you need to know. So how does Christ transform me? I mean, when, when we think about the things that, do you ever find yourself feeling ways that you don't want to feel or doing things you probably shouldn't have done? You know, I responded to that person in a really ugly way and I probably shouldn't have done that. Well, it all goes back down to our thoughts. So it's our, it's our way of thinking. It's our mindset. It's our uh, worldview. And we need to have a biblical worldview. But even more importantly, it's our, it's our treasure. So oftentimes, and there's a lot of American teaching that camps out on our actions, feelings, and thoughts. Think positive thoughts. Yeah, and I'm for thinking positive thoughts. You can think all the positive thoughts you want to in the world, but you better deal with your treasure or all those positive thoughts in the long run are going to do you a bit of good. What do you value most? What's most important to you? You've got to deal with that because it's a worship problem. We worship our way into trouble. The only way you, listen, the only way you can get yourself out is to worship your way out. You begin to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and make him your highest passion priority in your life. And it will change your whole perspective about everything. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. I, I wish I would have learned this early on in my life. It, it took me, I learned this about a decade and a half ago in uh, and, it, and when I began to understand this, it transformed my life. And it and helped me to deal with all the junk in my life. So, so as you're wanting life change, it's okay to deal with actions, to look at actions, to look at your feelings, and to deal with your thoughts. But you better go much deeper. You got to go much deeper because um, I think I wrote it here on my notes just to kind of help me to make sure that I understood this. Uh, so, so fear and pride can restrain the heart. So you can use fear and pride. Fear and pride are poor mo motivators. You can, so fear and pride can restrain the heart. You can restrain your actions and your feelings and thoughts through fear and pride. Fear would be, God's gonna get you. You don't wanna look like that. Or pride would be, you don't wanna be like all those loser people out there. You wanna be part of the winning team and be like the rest of us that are winning. Well, that's, that's pride. You're the treasure of your life, basically, if you start using fear and pride. Fear and pride can restrain the heart, but only love, his love, can transform our heart deep at the deepest level. And so there's a major difference between a morally restrained will 
God's going to get you. You don't want to live like that. Morally restrained will versus a supernaturally transformed heart. I've encountered Jesus and all that he's done. Now, let me walk you through the things that prevent us from having that heart transformation. And so the deeper the gospel goes, the greater the impact on my life. So let's, let's talk about the different kinds of hearts that keep us from experiencing that life change. First one's a stubborn heart. And he shows us this in verse five and, uh, verses 5 and 12. Remember the path? So the, so the sower would broadcast the seed in the fields, and in the, those fields they would have passed through the middle of the fields or on the outskirts, on the outline of the field. And that had been pounded down so it was hardened soil. So the seed would land on top, and he said the birds would come and eat the seed away. And so that's the, that's the stubborn heart And so there's things that create this stubbornness within us. One would be pride. Don't confuse me with the facts. I've already made up my mind. We talked about that a few weeks ago when we talked about doubt. There's people that I've come across and I says, don't give me any, don't confuse me with the facts. I've already made up my mind. And they just, they're just obstinate. They don't want to hear it. So pride can keep you from that. Also fear, you've been hurt. So you tend to build a wall. So I don't want to get close to anybody. I went to church one time and they really hurt me badly. I'll never go back to church again. Well, that doesn't make any sense. So you're just going to throw the whole church out just because you were hurt once or twice or however many times? And, and so, so you got fear. But then you've got bitterness. Bitterness can also be, and I find it interesting, he talks about being trampled underfoot. We're all trampled underfoot to a greater or lesser degree. Would you agree with that? You're all going to get hurt, but it's how you deal with that hurt. If you don't respond to it appropriately, your heart's going to become hard. And then when it comes to the seed of God's word, the enemy's going to come and take it. That's the first one. The next one is a shallow heart. That's found in verses 6 and 13, the rocks. It falls among the rocks, and so it doesn't, it doesn't have a good root system. Um, difficult times come, and it withers. So what would this be? This would be intellectualism. You just kind of come in and take notes, and it doesn't go any deeper than, than your thoughts. It's just you're thinking about it, but it, you don't take it with you. This could also be emotionalism. Did you notice that they received it with joy? Oh, there was excitement, but there, no good root system. It's all emotionalism. Or it could be also legalism. It could be just formal. You're just going through the motions, checking the church box, did that, did that, read my Bible today. No true encounter with Christ, not taking his word and really hearing it and listening to it and applying it to your life. The third one would be the strangled heart. That's verses 7 and 14. These are the thorns that grow up. The thorns are the cares, the riches, and the pleasures of life. I put it on your notes. So this is what hap- what's happening here is that created things become more important to you than the creator. Now, how do I know that? How do I know that that's happening in my life? It all happens to all of us. We all struggle with this. You know that it's happening when your enthusiasm for a gift, a gift from God, is greater than the giver, God. Anytime your enthusiasm, anytime it begins to, you know, there's a gift that dominates your thoughts, stirs your deepest emotions, and moves you to action, Anytime you have more enthusiasm over the gift than the giver, then you're falling prey to created things becoming more important to you than the creator. It is a sign that the gift is becoming a God that will rule and direct your heart. Now think about this just for a minute. Let me, let me walk you through some logic here. It is absolutely crazy. If you've tasted of the goodness of God, 
if you really know the Creator and you've had an encounter with Him, your heart's been made alive through the imperishable seed of God that you're born again, it's absolutely crazy that anyone would trade intimacy with the Creator for a created thing, isn't it? And yet we do it all the time. We exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve created things more than the Creator, Romans 1.25. We do that with money, romance, sports, leisure, vacations, career. We do it all the time. That's the battle. That's part of the battle. Now, next point in your notes. The gospel goes deep when Christ is my greatest treasure and deepest pleasure. That's the surrendered heart. So you got the stubborn heart, shallow heart, the strangled heart, and now you got the surrendered heart. And you will seek him and find him when you seek him with all of your heart. That's Jeremiah 29, 13. I think that's the surrendered heart, seeking him with all of your heart. He's your treasure. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. Now, real quick, this is what I'm going to do. I want you to discuss it with the folks sitting around you. Why did Jesus teach parables? Why did he use parables? Don't answer out loud, but discuss it with the folks sitting next to you. Uh, Was he trying to help people? Was he actually trying to help people to understand what he was saying? Or what was he trying to do? What was the purpose of parables? Real quick, do that. The answer is actually in the text. Okay, what are you guys thinking? What are you guys thinking? Here we go. So, did I give you enough time? Okay, some of you didn't even do that, did you? You, just, you said, I'm not going to listen to this guy at all. Okay, that's called the stubborn heart. That's the stubborn heart, so. Okay, so, so look, this is your next point on your notes. Jesus used parables to weed out those who aren't really serious. How many were thinking along those lines? So here's what I was taught years ago. I don't know where I read it, but they were talking. It was, the, it was one of those preaching classes or something, and they said, okay, if you really want to connect with your audience, you've got to tell stories, because Jesus told stories, and that was how he was able to connect with his audience. He's like, Jesus didn't tell stories to connect with his audience. He, he used stories to weed people out. He was thinning the herd. Jesus wasn't into mega churches, okay? Oh, there's like too many people following. We're going to thin this uh, herd. We're going to thin this out. That's, that was actually, he's constantly drawing the line. He's not trying to make it more appealing and trying to, he's just letting the gospel land where it lands and let, you know, let the results deal with what, however they might be dealt with. I mean, he just like, that's what he, I mean, if you don't believe this, look at, just look at the verse there, verses 9 and 10. This is what he says, and when the disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables. Why? So that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. So you think he was trying to help them? No, he's thinning the ranks. He's like, how serious are you? Are you coming to get from me? Remember the crowds are coming and they're wanting a free lunch? You know, they're wanting, wanting to get from him. Are you coming because you want me or you want something from me? Are you wanting to get from me or do you want to be with me? Do you want to know me? He's constantly drawing the line and saying, this is what it means to follow me. Do you want to, are you serious? That's what I love about Desert Breeze. I, I really believe we do that regularly. I, I, we have no problem doing that. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty intense. We're intense. We take the scriptures for what it is. And we just, we want it to land where it lands. And so that's the reason why some get it, some don't, and some fall away. 
It really comes down to, to our heart. Where's a person's heart? And uh, so, so let's talk about this. Let me give you three illustrations of what we need to do to get it down deep into our heart. And I think Paul helps us with this. So, so the idea is that we all want surrendered hearts. So what does a surrendered heart look like? And, and, and is that true? What did Paul do? What are some examples in the scripture of how he began to drive that truth down deep into the level of the treasure? And so what we need to do too. So let me give you, um, let me give you uh, three examples of this, let me give you one example that he uses here. It's racism example in Galatians 2. You guys remember when Paul confronted Peter? Peter was eating with the Gentiles. Then all of a sudden, the, uh, the religious folks showed up, and then Peter withdraws. It's like, oh, I can't be eating with the Gentiles because they're going to condemn me. And so what's fascinating about that, that's found in Galatians chapter 2. Paul doesn't appeal to Peter's actions. He doesn't appeal to his actions. Remember that highest level? on the chart, heart chart, on his behavior. He doesn't appeal to his actions by saying, you shouldn't be acting like this. Don't be racist. He doesn't do that. He doesn't use behavioral modification. He says, Galatians 2.14, your conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. In, in essence, he understood, and he's trying to appeal to Peter by saying, hey, racism comes from a fear in the heart that needs to bolster our self-image by looking down on other races. Peter, you don't need to bolster your self-image if you have the unmerited favor of God. You have the grace of God. Why are you doing this? Make sense? Can you see how he drove it right down to that lowest level? Where's your treasure, Peter? This is not consistent with someone whose treasure is in God. So you're showing some favoritism here. Okay, let me give you another example, stinginess. 2 Corinthians 8, Paul's encouraging these folks to give to the Jerusalem church, and the Jerusalem church has just taken a beating financially, and there's a lot of poverty that is hit. And so Paul doesn't appeal to their emotions by showing pictures of Jerusalem babies with bloated bellies and swarming flies around their faces, okay? Not that there's anything wrong with that, because you need to be aware of where there is poverty. But he's not working on their emotions. Beware of people that only work on your emotions. And what he's really dealing with is, he's once again taking it right down to the treasure level. What, what are you worshiping? What's most important to you? Now, for many people, money is either security or significance. The reason why we tend to cling to money and turn money into a God, a little G God, is because it's either... It's either our, our significance or it's our security. And I found this out really quick right after I married Nancy. Is that, be careful. Okay. Uh, when I first married her, I realized that money for her was significance because she was a spender. She just loved to spend money, buy more clothes, buy more shoes. <laughs> and she found out that I was a saver. Money was more about security. You see the difference? Hers was significant. She spent money because, oh, I can buy the stuff that makes me feel better about myself. And mine was like, I got to have some money. I don't want to work the rest of my life. And so let's save every dime we can get. And, you know, and so, so there's that difference. So, but both of those are based on a form of idolatry. Whether you're a spender or a saver, that's, you're, within reason, it's okay as long as you're putting your ultimate trust in God. And so 
you know, certainly Paul understands that, but this is what he does. He appeals to them based on uh, 2 Corinthians 8 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Folks, don't you see what Christ has done for us? See, Jesus' love gives me a remarkable significance that all the money in the world can't buy. And I don't have to worry about money because the cross proves God's care for me and gives me all the security I'll need. So money is not my God. It's not my significance of security. It's just money. And then I can use it for his glory. It changes the way that I use money. Does that make sense? Struggling with me? So it's at that level that you're dealing with your treasure. It's a treasure issue. It's a treasure problem. It's a worship problem. How about spousal abuse? Let's talk about this. In Ephesians 5, Paul gives some really great counsel for marriages. Paul is speaking to spouses, but especially to men who had brought a lot of their pagan ideas and thinking into their marriage, such as marriage is a business transaction, so you got to marry well but get your sexual gratification elsewhere. That was very common in that culture. Women were despised and not related to as peers or friends. So he doesn't try to change them at the level of their thinking, their worldview. He doesn't say, your thinking's all messed up, which it was, and, and, and there was a time and place for that. But he actually appeals to them through the gospel at the level of their treasure. Do you remember what he says in the fifth chapter of Ephesians? He says, husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. <laughs> I love it. If that doesn't get a hold of your heart, then you might not even be a Christian. That he died for you, he bled and died for you, he came and rescued you, even more so will you want to do that for your wife. If that doesn't ravish your heart, nothing will. That would, so that's why he's, he's dealing with it at that level. Okay, now, here we go. So that's that. That's how you begin to drive it down deep when you begin to look at the conflict going on in your life. You got to get rid of the stubborn heart, the shallow heart, the strangled heart. You got to make Christ the treasure, your greatest treasure, deepest pleasure. That's the surrendered heart. That's what we want. Let's talk about the sower. We're all sowers to a greater or lesser degree, but I want to talk about the ultimate sower. So the seed is the power, the soil is the power released in our lives, our heart, and then the sower, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the key to the power. Key to the power. Seeds have a paradoxical weakness and strength. Seeds only release power when they fall into the ground and die. So, for instance, a single acorn has enough power to cover the entire earth with wood. That is oak trees. One little acorn. Here's your next fill in the blank. The Father planned our salvation, the Son fulfilled it, and the Holy Spirit applies it. First Peter 1, 2. So you got the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the three in one, one in essence, three in person. And then here's the work of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the ultimate seed that fell into the earth and died bearing much fruit. Now this should be on your notes. It's also will be up on the big screen. This is really profound. This is Jesus speaking in John 12, 23 through 26, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much 
fruit. So Jesus is talking about himself, but now he's going to talk about all of us if indeed we are truly following him. And he says, whoever loves his life loses it. So if you love anything more than you love him, ultimately you're going to lose your life because everything other than him is temporal and you're going to lose it. But if you build your sense of identity on that which is eternal, you'll never lose it. That's the idea that he's saying. But you've got to die. You've got to die to your desire to want to make anything and everything more important to you than God. That's what he's saying here. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In comparison to your love for God, people are going to look at you and wow, I've never seen anybody love God as much as you love God. Because your career and your money and the bank account and, and all these other things aren't as important to you uh, as God is. Yes, yes. That's what he's saying. If anyone serves me, he will follow, he must follow me in where I am. There will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Here's the next point on your notes. Seeing him do that for me will transform my heart, will transform your heart that living for his glory will be your greatest joy. It will so transform your heart that living for his glory will be your greatest joy. And so in verses 15, you see the seed that falls on the good soil are those who hear the word, hold it fast with an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. Verse 16, our lives become a light, like a lamp shining bright. There's transformation happening. Verses, verse 21 of our text, Jesus' true family members are those who hear God's word and do it. Now, let me end two stories. We'll be finished. Here's the first story. There's a story by G. Campbell Morgan about a centuries-old grave in a graveyard in Italy. And apparently it was the grave of a very wealthy, prominent man that was covered by a seemingly unmovable old marble slab. But an acorn, acorn had fallen into the grave and over time grew into a very large oak tree right through the middle, splitting this marble slab. Isn't that crazy? And it has become a tourist attraction. Here's my point. It doesn't matter what kind of marble slab is over your heart. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what kind of marble slab is over your heart, whether it's a marble slab of, of anxiety or anger or depression or addiction or, or loneliness. The gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to bust completely through that marble slab and bring you freedom and fullness of life. It can do that. God's, God's seed, God's power, God's grace, God's the gospel, God's word, as you study his word diligently, as you take it and hold fast to it and endure, but you've got to endure. You've got to endure. You, get, you can't give up. Galatians 6, 9, but you must not grow weary of doing good for in due season you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. One more story, one more story. Here it is, and this is, this is what you need. This is the kind of perseverance that you need to have. There's the story of a man who in search of God came to study at the feet of an old teacher. The sage brought this, uh, this young man to a lake and led him out into the shoulder deep water. Putting his hand upon his pupil's head, 
he promptly pushed him under the water and continued to hold him there until the disciple, feeling he would surely drown, frantically fought the old man's resistance. In shock and confusion, the young man resurfaced. His teacher looked him in the eyes and said, when you desire God as much as you wanted air, you shall find him. That's the surrendered heart. That's the good soil. Next weekend, we'll talk about storms, storms, internal storms, external storms, and how storms will drive the gospel deeper into our hearts. Let's pray. So, Father God, we praise you. We praise you that the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has the power to bust completely through whatever it is that is holding us back from experiencing the fullness of life that, that he came to give to us, not based on our merits, but on his. May we not grow weary in doing good, knowing that we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. If we don't give up, may we seek you with all of our heart and therefore reap a harvest of so much, of so much satisfaction and love and contentment and peace in you that it would ruin us for anything else as our lives shine brighter and brighter, the light of the gospel of the glory of our Savior in this dark world, we pray in Jesus' holy and beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys.